At Lyft, Keaton Umare worked on Flight, an orchestration system for machine learning. Flight provides reliability and APIs for machine learning workflows and is used at companies outside of Lyft, such as Spotify. Since leaving Lyft, Keaton founded Union.ai, a company focused on productionizing Flight as a service. He joins the show to talk about the architecture and usage of Flight, as well as how he is formulating a company around it. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, we reach over 250,000 engineers monthly. If you're interested, send us an email, sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Keaton, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jeffrey. Nice to see you again and hear, you, hear from you. Yeah. So last time we talked about flight and the basics of how machine learning orchestration worked when you were at Lyft. Since then, you are working on a new company, which is Union.ai. And I wanted to just start by talking about your mission, which is pretty ambitious, which is to to build a user-focused operating system for the multi-cloud era. And that sounds great. It's pretty ambitious beyond the core vision of flight, which is making machine learning workflows more workable. Can you explain how there's a through line from a machine learning workflow engine to a user-focused operating system? Great question. So I guess our website is still not really completely designed. So thank you for going through the stealth mode website. (laughs) But what we imply and why an operating system, we can think about what an operating system is in the traditional sense, right? Like you have uh, hardware, which is your processor and memory and, you know, lots of other peripherals potentially, all of them nicely synchronized and working together through this one unified interface, which is your operating system. Without that operating system, every single person out there would have to make sense of a lot of different things. And potentially that slows down any kind of development that you can really do once you have, uh, without this abstraction layer. And so in here, what we mean is that it's necessary to have the right set of abstractions to make forward progress because without that, we actually keep on reinventing the wheel and doing many things yourself. And so now how does that relate to what we are trying to do? So Flight is not really a workflow engine only, right? It's a platform to essentially orchestrate machine learning. And in machine learning, there can be many, many different things uh, or machine learning pipeline involves multiple different paths. For example, we've talked, I think last year, a lot of folks talked about feature engineering and feature serving systems and so on. What that essentially implies is that data is really critical and data is a, is a very difficult beast to conquer. And we've like spent probably 15 years trying to you know, create multiple different systems and paradigms to conquer and make sense of the data itself. And now we are like up-leveling that further by using machine learning models on top of it to, to make further sense. And, and, and the data ecosystem itself is very challenging. It's lots of different players, lots of different fragmentation, different solutions, and all of them kind of 
Some of them fit together. Some of them don't work well with each other. And then now you move from the data to the ML ecosystem. And in some way, I think they are very conjoined. But the ML ecosystem also consists of modeling and, you know, and it the way you train a model potentially differs from how you process some data set. Even though in my head, training a model is another transformation that you're doing on the data, right? You're converting the data to more. If you're classifying, then you're creating a classifier, which is more active kind of a transformation that results in so that you can replay it online to get those classifications. And then once you have uh, models, then you probably go and you want to run predictions either offline or you want to run predictions online uh, or in streaming. You may also want to retrain the model based on triggers or things that you observe in production and, and or also observe the, the models as they are as they are running in production and, and react to those observations. So if you see like these are very different pieces, all of them, and there, there are lots of players already, like the MLOps boom, I would say. There's, there's like a lot of players coming up and a lot of different things, different ways of solving a problem, all of them happening. It, it, in my opinion, that's more like, like device, peripheral devices and device drivers. But we don't have a unified way of really bringing all of them together onto a single integrated platform. And that just works for the user. Now, that was the ambitious goal, right? Like when we started, like, what are we trying to do in a very, very simple layman term? And it's like, you know, we are kind of building an operating system that allows you to like plug and play different devices, bring things together and make it unified for the user. And that's why the name of the company is also Union, essentially, we don't think we will be building every single piece within the platform ecosystem, but we do definitely want to work with the best, the best of the breed, open source or closed source solutions out there to bring them together to our customers in a very unified way. And that's why we kind of casually called it the user operating system. Of course, some of it is going to get updated, but we really do mean that's what we're trying to build. It sounds a little too ambitious, but it's like many layers, right? We think that we are trying to abstract the complexity for the user. And just like operating systems, there can be many layers in it. Like you can abstract the layer, like you can have Linux, pure Linux kernel, or you can have a higher layer, which is like, you know, Ubuntu or Fedora or whatever, which have a much more you know, user interface layer on top of it. And you can have even higher layers on top of it, right? So, uh, and that's how we are thinking of the problem. Hopefully that clarifies your question. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask is you're interested in unifying the data and ML processes in the same platform. And I feel like the current status quo is some disconnected tools, ETL tools, reverse ETL tools, machine learning jobs in pandas or scikit-learn or tensorflow and then just spark jobs airflow jobs all these different things it seems like a necessity for there to be disparate data and ml processes why does it make sense to to unify them i don't mean to say we're trying to unify every single thing under the data ecosystem, it's, it's very vast, right? Like it's like from data ingestion, to, as you mentioned, reverse ETL. That's not the aim. I think the intention is to unify the processes that matter to a data scientist. 
or a machine learning engineer, which they do have, they do care about the data. Now that data could be transformed after the ETL processing directly into a data warehouse and or, you know, data lake and lake house and all of these different terminologies that are coming up, but they care about the data from that point on and then apply machine learning models on top of it, which in turn generates a lot more data, right? You may have a model which you run in production, which you have predictions on that generate a bunch of data, which may be used actually in turn, and I've seen this at Lyft and other companies now, which gets in turn used to generate another model. And so this factor of layering, and there is interaction or transformations happening from data to model to data to model, that's the portion that we are really, we really care about and concentrating on. If you squint, you could generalize some pieces to do other things like ETL, reverse ETL, and so on. But the platform that we are building does not want to really handle those pieces specifically because there's a lot of work to be done just in this, you know, the, this in the machine learning part of the world, which has personalized most importantly. Let's give a review for people who haven't heard the previous episode we did about flight. What problem does flight solve and how does it compare to the other workflow management tools that people are probably familiar with, like Airflow, for example? Uh, great question. So, and, and I think we did, like in our previous episode, we when we talked, or last time when we talked, we did touch upon, at that time I was at Lyft and uh, we started flight at Lyft probably in 2017. It's much before many of the other orchestrators on the market existed besides Airflow. And we actually started off not by saying that we'll reinvent on day one. We said, hey, we don't want to build this. This is like a lot of infrastructure work. And I, I used to run a model training or a, or a model creation team. And that team was responsible in delivering models that, uh, that affected uh, lifts metrics. And so we wanted to basically bring efficiency to our daily operations. And so we were like, all right, how do I solve this problem? And we looked around, we found Airflow. We actually tried to really, really uh, make it work. And, and to a point that we actually heavily modified Airflow. I think maybe a few days ago, somebody was, you know, reminded me of, uh, of a script I had written, which was called Better Airflow, which would take Airflow and kind of add a few features into it, like, dynamic triggering of uh, tags and, you know, passing data into tags and so on. But it was all a set of bandages and like, you know, duct taping and massive amounts of uh, blood, sweat and tears that actually went in to make it work, but it worked, right? We got it working and, and credit where it's due. Uh, we were able to deliver what we wanted at, at a very, very small scale with, with Airflow. The problem really happened where like, it was not operationally feasible to maintain that monstrosity that we had built. That was one. And then second, many other teams looking at us that wanted to use what we had done. And when we actually thought about it, like we were like, okay, if, if there are so many teams that are wanting to build and do something similar to us, 
this seems to be a more general problem. And that led us, led me to write like the first design of something that we think could solve the problem, not with any intention of implementing. It was more like, hey, this is the design. We think this is a solution. Hopefully, you know, we can get some support from the intra team and, and somebody else to build this or, or if they can think about an existing solution out there that we can use that solves this problem, let's go for it. And the result was like there was no such solution. And of course, we were a tiny company then, Lyft was. Um, so we didn't have too many people building it. So as a challenge, we we built it and we were able to help many, many other product teams within the company to deliver value very quickly. And, and I think the learnings that we had are, uh, was that the ML and the data engineer, uh, sorry, the ML and the data scientists uh, who used flight essentially did not care about the infrastructure. The time for procuring infrastructure, like the typical, if you think about a typical DevOps journey, when you're thinking about writing a service, right? And the way we do it is we write the design, the system design of the service. And in the system design, we say like, okay, this sort of database, this sort of like you know, service, this sort of SLA and so on. Like we do the entire gamut first, and then we go ahead building things, procuring the infrastructure for it, and then we actually make the deployment. And machine learning is kind of inverted. You don't think about the infrastructure first. You think about the problem. You think about the potential architecture that could solve it. And here I'm talking about model architectures and so on, right? the data bits that you need to solve it. And then you don't know if you're actually going to deliver this model in this specific way because you have to try it out. And you try it out and it may not work. And then you try out another thing. It may not work and another thing, and then it would work and you want to immediately deliver it. So it's an inversion of like the way we think in DevOps to the way we think in MLOps. And that needs to be encapsulated by the infrastructure itself because the many, many uh, data scientists and ML engineers, they're fantastic folks, right? you know, really smart. And what they do is probably I can't do in my daily life because my depth of understanding machine learning is not as much. But on the other hand, if you take the typical approach, we are expecting them to become great distributed systems engineers too, along with the amazing mathematical and machine learning capabilities they have, which is which is just too much to ask for. And so, what we wanted was to create a kit, uh, create a streamlined experience that allows them to build yet to be within the realms of good practices, so that we can have good standards like you know security of data not no malicious code running anywhere, right? There's always vulnerabilities are handled very quickly and so on. And so we, we we realize that it's important to split the roles of infrastructure and machine learning. So that means the user should not care about the infrastructure and the infrastructure should be handled by folks who really care about the infrastructure or care about operations. This was a joke, another joke that I make is like in ML ops, I think it's like two parts, there's ML and there's ops. And there are two people who care about one set of personality that cares about ops and another set that cares about ML. And in ML ops, we bring those two together. Really, right? that's that's the idea. And the way you bring that together is through the software, not through the practice. You write the software, and you can split the two people on two sides of the boundary, where the ML folks can concentrate on the machine learning parts of it, while the while the infrastructure folks can concentrate on the operations and maintaining and scaling and deploying part of it. And so that's what happened is when we started working with Flight, we essentially made this conscious decision that we will be the infrastructure team for the entire company. And the, the entire company gets to use this as a platform. 
And we realize that many people do not have one single unit of work. They have like multiple units of work that they want to tie together into a flow. And that's why we have workflow engine in there. It's not really just a workflow engine. It's more of a workflow automation platform. That means you have a bunch of steps. You can run one step individually or you can run a bunch of steps together. You can run them on demand or you can run them on a schedule and you can debug them. But you don't really, as a user, you don't really care about the infrastructure where it's running. It runs serverlessly from your point of view. And, and then there is an infra team that actually manages that platform for you and then runs it for you. And that is flight in, in summation. And I quickly went over why we came up with this decision. Can you describe the the runtime model of flight? Like what does the application consist of? Is it is it like a single node that's just sitting there helping you schedule lots of other tasks, or is it a multi-node system? Yeah, uh, great question. So that was another thing that we, like when we were working with Airflow, we didn't like the single point of failure style. We didn't like the coupling between the code and the, the scheduler and, and the workers, like, uh, like the deployment model of it. We wanted people to work on independent repositories. And like, we didn't want the entire system to crumble when somebody, you know, imports uh it imports TensorFlow versus PyTorch, or, you know, and we didn't want us to dictate the versions of PyTorch that the entire company should use because that really doesn't work. So the model is essentially a service, which is like an AWS service in the company. And this and all the functions that Flight provides are offered through this simple service endpoint. And it's not it's not really simple because there are like so many endpoints on it. Like you can actually dynamically create a workflow just using an API. You don't even need to write code. You can trigger the execution of a workflow. You can observe workflows. You can get historical information. All of this through this one API. Uh, and it's written in gRPC REST. So you can actually invoke it from any language that Protobuf supports, as well as uh, interact with it through your CLIs and command line. So this is one of the, uh, the gateways into the system. And that is your, uh, it's, the, it's the service. Once at runtime, the execution actually goes to a Kubernetes cluster. And we have an engine that runs within Kubernetes cluster and it can run on, you know, it can scale on to multiple nodes. Uh, there's no single point of failure. Kubernetes itself has a very stateful or a very consistent state store, which is called etcd. And it's based on Raft. So it's, it's really uh, scalable and, and durable. Even in the event of like, multiple node failures, it works pretty well. So we we use that, we piggyback on that and we store our state information within the etcd itself. And, and the engine essentially gets a workflow like, like a DAG or it's not really a DAG, it's more than a DAG, but like, you know, from simplistic point of view, it's like a DAG that you can execute. And then it tries to execute it in an event loop. And an event loop here is essentially every time it, gets a DAG, it tries to make as much progress as it can uh, till it can make no more progress. And then it yields control back to the scheduler. Uh, and and the progress here is like, you know, creating an instance of the work, expected work. And an example could be starting a pod in Kubernetes or running a container or scheduling some work in an external system like AWS Batch or SageMaker or things like that. And once it ensures that progress has been made, it 
it reschedules on the scheduler, finds the next bit to do, makes more progress, and then yields control. And this way of event loops is actually, you know, many storage systems and many, many interesting systems have been written by event loops. And if you realize the scheduler is not really doing a lot of work, it's essentially just scheduling. And doing it this way allows it to be, you can really kill the scheduler at any point in time and restart it and it can just come back and start working. The only real thing that actually affects the the scale of the scheduler is if there is like a slower write throughput that you get from some storage subsystem. And to scale from that, we actually do sharding within the storage subsystem and so on. And it we've seen that even one process can run about 10,000 concurrent uh, workflows and flight allows you to scale that across uh, with to multiple nodes within a cluster. And so you can run about 100,000 or so without any problem. And then I think Kubernetes itself will start having problems. So that's where flight allows you to run multiple Kubernetes clusters and routes between Kubernetes clusters. And the idea there was because you are in, if you are an infrastructure team, you don't want your users, you may sometimes have to isolate your users because there's like a very critical use case and they are like, no, no, we want to run every 10 minutes and we don't care. You should just use, we are ready to pay the cost, right, for it. So you want a dedicated cluster for them and you might want to isolate their failure domains. In other cases, you may want to swap out clusters uh, on the fly because you do routine maintenance on your clusters. Like even in Kubernetes, right, we have seen cases when you have to patch the nodes, you have to patch even the API servers and so on. And so Flight allows you to manage all of this transparently to the users. And it's a vertically integrated workflow automation platform that is uh, does not really have a single point of failure and is scalable to multiple Kubernetes clusters. So instead of a node or 10 nodes, it can run on thousands of nodes. So at Lyft, we had about 5,000 nodes in our cluster that would run all of Spark jobs uh, at Lyft, as well as all of... Uh, machine learning, uh, training, as well as, you know, many, many data processing jobs, but some were offloaded, like to external systems as well. To get a better grounded understanding of what problems Flight solved at Lyft relative to older systems, can you describe a particular machine learning job that ran on Flight or runs on Flight and how it's utilizing flight? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's take an example. Maybe I'll go through two examples, slightly different ones. One of them is, I guess, a team that I was leading. So we'll we'll talk about that, and it's open because I've talked about it in the past. It's ETAs. So from the end user point of view, when you open up your app, you get a number, which is the ETA, the estimated time of arrival, and in the Lyft app, I mean, uh, and this is critical because it actually is important to be accurate or close to accurate. Otherwise, the user loses trust in the system. Um, and then the, the second part to that is like when you when you also get that, you get an estimated time to destination, which is used to drive the price for your ride. And both of these are critical from the user point of view. And both of these are models that are trained on on flight or at least at some level. Uh, and so one of the models, and it, it's not just one model, it's a bunch of models that actually play in together, but I'll talk about one model. It's trying to guess the traffic that's currently 
that Lyft can observe currently on the road. So, so essentially it's trying to estimate the road uh, traffic situation using the, you know, the, the drivers who are driving around because we are getting real-time probes from them. So we know that on this road, these cars are taking two times longer than the previous, uh, than the default average on that road. Uh, and that can give us that there is a slowdown, right? And so now if I, if I say that, if I route a person through this road, then instead of the default 10 minutes, it might take you know, 15 or 20 minutes, depends on the, on the model. And this model, this situation changes every 10 minutes, right? Or every few minutes, uh, maybe every minute, right? But we also observed that changing too rapidly doesn't really improve the signal, but changing at a, at a good cadence does improve the signal. And so what we did is we got a lot of data in real time, which was from these drivers, which we converted to road signals. And using that, we generated a model. And here the model is essentially weights on the road network and a bias adjust model that would adjust or based on the variance or the bias that we had in the system and a baseline model that would help make sure that our decisions are never do not deviate from a known standard. So these three models in together were trained on flight. One of them was trained every 10 minutes. One of them is trained at a, at a monthly or a weekly frequency. Another one is uh, trained at uh, every day frequency. And, and together they get uh, deployed to a service in the end. And another critical part to this was when I'm about to make a change to this model, how do I verify that my model is correct? or is good. Um, you can, of course, run A-B test, but that's too late. That's like, you know, that's going, this is like taking a bad ex example and giving it to your uh, students to verify if it works or not. And that's not really what you want to do with your customers all the time. So Flight also runs the simulations for, for making sure that the model is good enough before deploying to production. Now, Granted that these simulations are simulations, so they will never catch all situations, but they do catch some, you know, hairy, really, really bad off, uh, like heavily under characterized, characterized or uh, completely uh, outlier type models. So the simulation works with like, okay, take the last three months of data, take the first month as the training, next two months as the validation and run the simulation with all these three models being deployed and used in different capacities. And we used to run the simulations. And that was also another reason why we built flight in the way we did, where we had a lot of ad hoc, large scale jobs running. And simulations are extremely large and time taking. And so this is an example. Another example is Lyft trained or like builds its own maps now, for example. And then we have another user, Black Shark, which is creating a digital twin of the world maps. And they use a lot of machine learning to essentially extrude the buildings and the road network and create a three-dimensional artifact from the, uh, let's say, a satellite view of the geography. And uh, Lyft does not do that. Lyft, Lyft uses open street maps and some other things and collates them and uses machine learning to actually match things together and create like a, a world map. Not a world map, like just a uh, US and Canada map. And both of these are, are extremely data processing centric. They, use, they may use Spark. They use a lot of Python and Java processing, but they also use deep learning models in them. And, and this fusion of data and ML is where flight really shines. And this is another use case where 
folks use Flight and actually get a lot of value because these teams consist of, they do consist of like experts in Spark, experts in machine learning, experts in experts in geospatial engineering and so on. Uh, and then Flight allows, and Flight brings all of them together to build a cohesive outcome, which is essentially a map in this case. And when you look at productizing flight into uh, a service that is vendable as a product, does it look just like sort of the, the platform that you wanted to make available to engineers inside Lyft? Or is there some alternative route to deployment and monetization that you're taking? Fantastic questions. Some of them may be on the stealth, uh, like it may be hard to disclose everything, but I think it can be done in multiple layers. So there are uh, three parts to this problem. One of the parts is, as I said, we wanted to separate out the infrastructure folks from the folks who actually do the real work of writing the business logic. And this works great with like larger companies. And that's what is happening at the moment with the adoption of flight. It's like adopted by all the companies thought leaders and, and folks who have, a, who have a decent engineering strength. And that's because running, even though flight actually is very reliable software and it's, it's battle tested, you still have to run Kubernetes. You have to have knowledge of running some sort of Kubernetes. Even if you use EKS, right, there's some knowledge that you need to have. And as a company offering, we actually want to help our users achieve their goals without really having to worry about the infrastructure. And so, union essentially is poised to be their infrastructure partners in that sense. So that's one part, definitely a part of the play. And second is I think certain things to do in open source and flight is, and we pride ourselves on being completely open source. We actually donated to Linux Foundation and just last week it was graduated to a top level project in Linux Foundation. But certain things to do in open source are extremely hard just because the scale characteristics or like, sorry, the deployment characteristics affect how you would build certain systems. And so we think in Union, we can actually build certain systems that are really hard to build in open source, just because, you know, we want global deployment and we want like, you know, multi-region availability and so on. Those things are just very hard to build in open source. And, and so we, we will offer those as additional services. Some aspects are like around sharing, like any, anybody who has a flight cluster can get more out of them, uh, even, whether they are, whether they are uh, using the open source or the union variant, they can get more out of it. And that's the third angle that we, are, we think we have to offer. And, and I think this way, I, I don't know about the monetization because that would be too hard to answer over here, but like essentially we think we can add value to all our users and new users of flight and union platforms. So when you take a existing set of disconnected workflow operations and move them on to flight, what are you getting out of it exactly? Like how is it improving your your usability? Yeah, fantastic question. So actually somebody asked me this or asked this question in Slack yesterday or day before yesterday. And and, and the the question was very simple. It's like, okay, I wrote all of this, you know, 
tasks and in the workflow. What's the benefit? Why am I doing this? The answer, and this was the simpler part of your question, right? And then the other question that you have is like disparate parts and connecting them, right? So let's just answer why to break a large problem into smaller pieces. One, it's a great way of documenting your software, like just to break smaller pieces. So you usually break it into multiple functions. It improves reusability. It improves shareability dramatically, right? But at runtime, what it really improves is failure to like improves resiliency because you, let's say you have three parts, like three things that you want to do in sequence. Uh, if you if you fail at the second part in a traditional normal piece of software, you'll start from the first part again. You have to, there's no other way, right? You crash the piece of software. So you start with the first part and you go to the second part and then you go to the third part. Now you can solve that by doing checkpoints. And this is why checkpoints were created. And, and checkpoints are not trivial to implement and to implement correctly even more so. And workflow engines are essentially a way of checkpointing your progress. Because in workflow engines, you are guaranteed to never go back in time. And you go, you only make forward progress. So in case of the failure, let's say the failure was transient and you can retry a few times and, and the failure goes away. This can be easily accomplished by using something like flight, where you can just you know put a simple decorator on it and say like, oh, I am okay with failures, retry them. Another piece is there are two aspects to this. Now, some some of these failures are just infrastructure failures and and they don't even retries don't help now you've lost progress on it and there was no other way recourse but for flight to like say that this workflow cannot make any more progress so sorry you have to stop it and this can be like you know let's say aws goes down a crazy situation but at least aws in your region goes down right and then when you want to recover you'll have to restart because you've lost all progress even like all kinds of uh, things that you've done so flight essentially allows you to fully recover from a previous execution and again step to a point where the last failure occurred and you know drive everything ahead from that point on and which is which you know for critical applications this is a required sense of reliability and resiliency that's required right and then the third aspect is like when you're iterating and specifically in machine learning, you, you had the three steps again. And step one you ran was like a query that you did, which was like long and it costed you a ton, maybe on Snowflake, and you now have the results. But your model had a bug uh, and you fixed that model bug. Now, should you read on that query to re-fetch uh, that data? You shouldn't, right? It's, you already just fetched it like maybe a day ago or 10 minutes ago. So flight memoizes results of previous executions. And this is an opt-in feature, of course, but uh, when you opt-in, you have to tell flight that this particular execution is deterministic, hermetic, and does not have side effect. Then it will memoize the results of that execution. And every time it sees that execution anywhere in the platform, now it's not just you. Maybe there are four other people who are going to run the same query you will memoize those results and reuse the results from that one single execution across everybody. Now, this has huge cost-saving advantages as well as performance and efficiency benefits, especially in the iterative model of like training a new model and you know, trying out new things. Another aspect, as you said, is like, what about disparate systems? Like, you know, disparate systems communicate in different ways. And I'll give you an example. Most data scientists are used to writing pandas data frames. But sometimes for data processing, you have to use Spark. 
and Spark is uses its own concept of data frames. And then sometimes you want to actually take that Spark data frame and send it to a model, which is a pandas data frame based model, which is on one single machine. And that's good enough, right? For most models that I've seen, one machine with a couple of GPUs is pretty good for, for many models to get started with. And so how do you translate from a Spark data frame to a pandas data frame? Yes, there exist technologies like Arrow and, and there exists a way to hand off into Parquet like as an intermediate format and then load it back in. But this is all complicated for most users. They really have never dealt with it. I've never thought about it. In flight, we, we have canonicalized this into a schema, into a type schema system. And if, if Spark generates a data frame, you can easily consume it into a Python, Pandas data frame, or even in Java. Uh, independently without really thinking about how the translation is happening, where the data is going through, what's the intermediate representation, and so on. We take care of everything uh, within the underneath layer. And thus, it becomes a substrate that allows you to connect pieces, even if they are across disparate systems. Yeah, and, and, and there was this one more aspect, actually, to it, which is automatic parallelism. So when you generate some data set that you're consuming across three functions, even if you write them linearly, let's say Python, they will get executed linearly in Python. But in flight, it'll see that this data set is ready and now it's consumed by these three different functions. I can run all these three functions in parallel. And flight will auto-parallelize them and run them on distributed setting on multiple nodes. And that gives you efficiency as well as performance benefits. And centralizing the platform of using flight. Now, again, if you are if you're a data scientist in a company, if you have about tens of data scientists in that company, centralizing on one platform has a huge advantage. You can like run GPUs on that one centralized cluster and GPUs are extremely expensive and reuse those GPUs across all the data scientists because Flight is a multi-tenant central hosted platform. It's very easy to like, you know, oh, this guy uses a GPU right now. So I'm going to give him the GPU or the GPU and that person uses the GPU then. And so we are going to give that person the GPU. Uh, and, and you can just have one GPU and use across the day through, and Flight will also manage back pressure and queuing and all that for you. So you can just manage your cost. You can put a budget on the Flight central cluster and you can manage your cost for machine learning. Uh, and along with that, you can use spot machines and interruptible machines and Flight also manages them very well. So that actually has an effect of reducing your total spend on training machine learning. And I think the number one problem in actually once you start really training a lot of models, this cost, it becomes really, really expensive. Can you tell me about how the API for using flight has evolved? Like if I'm interfacing with flight, what exactly am I specifying to the platform and where are the points of integration? I think this is a fantastic question. You've done your homework. So last time when we talked, the API for flight was also Python-based. We also have Java and Scala-based APIs, but I'm going to talk about the Python-based API because that's actually the most commonly used one. And the API was uh, written in 2017. Uh, and remember, I told you that we actually wrote it for Airflow, and then we moved on to this thing called a step functions, and we found problems and we moved on. And But the API did not change. It was written before Python 3 was, a, you know, Thing. And so it had a lot of boilerplate and, and folks had to get used to writing code in you know, like way. 
we realize that that's not what users really do. They write like most Python engineers know Python and they write Python code. And we don't want, we didn't, we did not want to get into the way of these folks. And so we like early 2021, 20, we released a new version of the flight Python SDK uh, of flight kit. And this API essentially is feels as if you're writing pure Python. It's just, 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 if you remove any of the couple flight decorators that you add, it is a regular Python code and you can just run it as if it's Python. And then if you add those decorators, it becomes into a flight workflow. Uh, and including the input and output types, uh, you use the Python type hinting system to essentially tell flight about what your intentions are about the data. And like, for example, you say like, I want an int and a string and a pandas data frame. Flight will automatically understand what you want from it. And once you register with the system, you can actually generate, we generate a launch form for you that says, give me an integer and a string and a, and a file, which is a parquet file that contains, you know, your pandas or your data frame equivalent. And all this is automatically written in Python. You do not try to get away from Python, just write pure Python. Similarly in Java and Scala, it's very native to writing Java and Scala code. Now the other aspect in, in flight is extensions. So let's say I want to run a distributed training job using MPI. For a regular person, this may seem very daunting if you've never used MPI before this. But with flight, you essentially pip install flight kit plugins MPI. And of course, you have to have a backend plugin installed in, in, in your flight deployment. But once you do that, anybody in the team can write an MPI job just write a, like writing Python code and a context is given to you, which has the MPI set up for you. So it's in the same Python code, you now have MPI running. And you can of course run all of this locally because it's all still a Python code. You can run it locally. Of course you won't get multiple machines to as if to train a distributed model, but you will be able to like simulate the MPI as a single node process. And then when you train it on remote, you can scale up to hundreds of nodes whatever you request require for your training job and and the goal of flight kit which is the sdk for writing flight jobs is essentially to simplify the user interface just make it as simple as possible for users to write their python code and let us try and do the hard work of understanding and converting it to converting it to a distributed system and do you have any reflections on running flight intelligently and i'm i'm sure you're learning more about this as you're turning it into a service great question um in terms of like the infrastructure like what the uh, deployment model is i won't talk about like how we are doing it in union at the moment but we'll talk about like all the learnings because we've, we've been running it for a while right and there are lots of users now uh, who've been using flight and they have like i think Folks or companies that use flight are often looking for a solution that is reliable, resilient, and secure by design. And secure is, security is often an afterthought in many, many systems. Uh, in flight, it's not an afterthought. It was like a first level thought. That makes it harder for certain users to use it, right? Because you have to use an IAM role for every single execution, for example, if you're on AWS or you have to have the right set of secrets and there is just no way, like we don't allow secrets to be passed in plain text ever in the system. 
if you have secrets, you have to pass through a proper authentic like secret channel. And these are extremely critical as a business because we have users relying on you. In the back end, when you're running it, you now have to run a Kubernetes cluster. You potentially have to run a secrets manager like Vault, uh, or you know you can use a hosted service from AWS Secret Manager or whatever. Um, you can use Kubernetes-based operators to do certain things. Like for example, you can run spin up a Spark cluster dynamically within Kubernetes using Flight, or you can offload those jobs to something like Databricks. So the if you use Kubernetes to run all your jobs, then you, as an organization, it's better that you have some sort of Kubernetes DevOps expertise to essentially maintain the scale and the capabilities of Kubernetes, right? There are cases in which it, you know, it doesn't, it's not designed for like really, really large scale, quick number of part creations and so on. And Flight provides you a lot of tools to essentially allow that, you know, let's say if you have 10 users in your company using it at the same time, and if all of them hammer you with like thousands of jobs, it's going to cause a problem on the Kubernetes cluster. And because of our years of experience with Kubernetes, we have encoded all of this into flight backend. And so it will automatically handle back pressure. It will do resource pooling. It will try to queue up things and, and so on. But at some level, to understand all of this, you definitely need to understand the problems of Kubernetes or through our documentation and, and then there will be supports in our documentation. Please bring it up with us you know, in the Slack channel, in the open source Slack channel. Another thing is we, we highly recommend users once they go to some scale to have more than one Kubernetes cluster within the flight logical cluster. And that is because if one Kubernetes cluster goes down, you do not want to lose availability for your users. And at Lyft, we used to run with like 13 clusters five to ten thousand nodes so yeah so these were the learnings we have we ship with a lot of observability dashboards lots of tools to debug things and but those are probably more suitable for devops and infrastructure engineers cool well as we wrap up do you have any final reflections any anything else you want to add about the engineering of flight or just other things you've you've learned about company building or oh, company building i've learned a lot i think probably I, I would love to write my blog one day as an immigrant starting a company and stumbling across different facts and and building a culture and you know how to really build an inclusive and completely honest company uh, because those are the values that i believe in uh, yeah so we would love to I, I think i will be writing a blog at some point um don't quote me but i, I definitely want to but from a engineering point of view i think we've realized a few things and like you know we have a long-term roadmap for flight like we see a lot of things so we are working on layers that actually help certain types of users to further explore and you know uh, express their ideas much more succinctly and much more clearly and easily. So stay tuned, something's coming soon. And we are also uh, working on like, we, we've realized that many people have tried to push the boundaries with flight and, and we've been extremely focused on correctness, reproducibility, reliability, while there are some other players out there who are not really focused on those parts, but focused on 
purely on the uh, on the user experience. And what I've realized is user experience is the key, right? It's the key to everything. And so we are working heavily on the user experience portions of it. And, and we're working with some users who are trying to push the boundaries of light and essentially trying to run like many second light workloads that are fully reproducible and fully lineage driven. And so we are working on those kind of really interesting engineering challenges of building a almost real time serverless platform that scales to users need without touching it from the user side. So yeah, so there's a lot to build here. There's like a, there's a fantastic opportunity. And so if anybody who's listening and we are hiring in all sorts of engineering roles, we'd love to talk to you. Join the Slack channel, say hi to me, send me an email. Awesome. Well, Keaton, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, same here. Thank you, Jeff.